In the movie Signs, Mel Gibson plays a minister, Reverend Graham Hess. He was a minister up until the time when something horrible happens in his life. And that was the freakish, horrible accident in the very beginning of the movie with his wife. Six months later, he has now left the ministry, left the church. He's despondent with everything about God. And these 14 lights come. And there have been some evidence in the movie. If you've seen the movie, there's some evidence that there are alien creatures that have invaded. It all starts out because Mel Gibson looks outside of his, uh, where he lives on a, on a farm, and he sees these huge uh, crop circles. And he thinks, what's this all about? And all of a sudden, there's reports all over the world, and the whole thing spreads. And it goes all the way to that scene where he's sitting there with his brother. And he's having that conversation about there's people break down into two groups. There's the people who have hope that there's someone looking out for you, or there's people who say, there's nothing out there. Now, whether or not you like uh, science fiction... And I, some of it that I love, and I love this movie, and it's out there. I mean, it's, you got to have a lot, kind of a wild imagination to believe this movie. But I, I love to think about those kinds of things, and I love the conversation between Gibson and his brother. When I saw that, I don't know when this movie came out, three years ago or so, I thought, oh, I can't wait to show that clip. <laughs> I don't know where it's going to fit. I want to make it fit somewhere. It's just a perfect clip. What you're hearing in, in Gibson there is a guy who once held to a very strong view that an almighty God was in control of things and something happens in his life and it so shocks him that he just punts on everything. He's so profoundly hardened by the unexpected death of his wife who, wife, who he loved incredibly. They had a great relationship that he has now completely punted on God. And so many people do that. So many people do that. Life gets hard, and they say, hey, wait a minute. This isn't the deal I signed up for. This isn't the plan I signed up for. I signed up for the God is good, God is all caring, and all of my problems will now be taken care of plan. That's the $559.99 plan. I signed up for that one. I don't want the cheaper plan. And then you realize that what you've got is the cheaper plan. Something happens in your life, and it shakes your world. And you become like Gibson. You can become despondent. You don't know which way to turn. Do I trust in this almighty being even though possibly, quite possibly, he's allowed this to happen which has deeply wounded me. Right now we're continuing on our Church on Fire series. And last week, uh, Chris Wachter uh, preached. He did a great job too. I listened to that this morning. Where's C-Dub? I saw him somewhere. He's in the kids. Ah, preach one week, do nursery the next week. He uh, preached a message about God being completely in control of history. He went back to Alexander the Great. That was amazing. Uh, it went back to how Alexander the Great and the spread of the Greek culture was just what the church needed to spread like crazy. And it's true. It was true. I mean, God set it up. He's in complete control. And then at the very end of Chris's message last week, for those of you who are here, I, I forced him. I said, he came into my office. He said, I can't do a whole passage. And I said, just like Gollum, oh, yes, you are. You're reading that entire passage because I'm going on to Acts 12. And so, and he kind of made a joke about it last week. I said, you got to finish that. And he just read it real quick. And it was this account where in Acts chapter 11, the last part of that section, it says that 
a prophet stood up by the name of Agabus and prophesied that there'd be a great famine. A great famine in the land. Now, we don't really even understand famine. We, we have so much stockpiles and everything, but just think of being in an agricultural society and having a famine come. It would be very, very, very difficult. Things started to get tough for them. Now, things this week are even going to get worse. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Acts chapter 12. We're going to look at how things got a little bit worse. There's also an insert. You can look along there. All the passages we're going to use this morning, I think save one, are in that uh, insert. And or you can just look on the screen, however, whatever floats your boat. Acts chapter 12. I'm going to read this through one time, then we're going to kind of look at it. We're only going to look at the first four verses of Acts chapter 12. Verse 1. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this pleased the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to, to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Did a little math there. That's 16 people. <laughs> Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So let's take a look at this. Kind of look at this. I'm going to divide this into basically two chunks. First, uh, we're going to look at the first couple verses, and then we're going to look at the second couple. First couple. It says that uh, King Herod arrested some people, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death. Now, a couple things just to observe. First thing is, it said he arrested some. So there was more than one that he arrested. And we finally, right here, get a date. We finally can stamp this thing with a date. Because we know that this guy, King Herod, we know that he reigned from 42 to 44 AD. So that, now we can kind of date the church a little bit. Remember we were saying we're not sure exactly how far in we are and how old the church is. But by Acts chapter 12, we know we're in somewhere in that time, probably most scholars believe in 44 because soon after Herod's going to die, and we know he dies in 44 AD. So we can date this thing. Now, the trick is, you'd think that the calendar started at zero. Jesus lived to be 33 years old, and so it'd be 33 when, the, you know, when he died and was raised again, and then it was ascended to heaven, the church started. Uh, it's not that simple. Somewhere, somebody made a mistake, and we're not sure exactly when zero is. It's supposed to be when Christ was born, but it's messed up a little bit. So we have a little bit of a variance. I, I, I looked into some things and people dated as early as 30 when Jesus was crucified and when he was raised again and when he ascended onto heaven and when the church started running. Could be as early as 30 or as old as 36. So the church is between, at this point in time, eight and 14 years, huh? On our eighth birthday, huh? Uh, the church is between eight and 14 years along. Now, a little bit about Herod. <clears throat> Herod is actually the great, or excuse me, the grandson of Herod the Great, the one that was around when Jesus, you know, when Herod put to death all the babies, and he said every child under, was it three years old, shall be put to death. To kill all the children. So that's a different Herod. He's the, he's, now there's Herod and Herod and then Herod. Okay, they were on this Herod. Herod uh, Agrippa was his name. Like I said, he was king of Palestine from 42 to 44. 
And it had been, some scholars say about eight, it could be up to eight years since the persecution of and the death of Stephen, who I was named after. My mother and father are here this week, and my mother and father named me Stephen Paul Trichler after two martyrs. They have a death wish on my life, I think. Uh, but <clears throat> it's been eight years since the uh, death of Stephen. The disciples now are not popular in Jerusalem. Remember, persecution has spread out since the time of Stephen. They're not popular with the, the governing rulers of the culture, and they're not, certainly not popular with the Jewish religious rulers. The Sadducees and the Pharisees, are, all those rulers, they're not popular with them. And so Herod is no dummy. He says, hey, here's a way that I can, uh, I can start to, to get some influence with these people. And so what he does, history tells us that he was actually one of the favorites of the Roman Emperor Caligula at this time, that Herod was one of the favorites of him, and he wanted to placate his Jewish subjects, and what he did is he built a lot of theaters, and he had games for the Romans and the Jewish where they would actually persecute and slay Christians. Yikes. I know, it's a bummer, the twins lost, but they didn't get slayed afterwards. This was... A bad deal. What does he do? He says he takes some, he, he persecutes them. It says he seized some there in verse 1, rested some, and in verse 2 it says he put uh, James to death by the sword. Now that phrase, death by the sword, is a common phrase. We might lose it, but it, it, it means beheading. So they beheaded James. So, let's take a look at verses 3 and 4. Herod's poll numbers go up, so he does it again. It says, when he had saw this pleased the Jews, hey, why, why go for, for James? He's not a big fish. Let's get the biggest fish, Peter. And they seized Peter. And this happened during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This happened during the Passover. So we're coming to another time. Remember, Jesus was seized during the Passover. And the church was, was starting to run at that period of time. The, what happened too is during Passover, Jerusalem would have just been full of Jewish people. So here you go. Let's seize Peter. Right during then, it'll make all these Jewish people who hate Christians um, because they, they view Christianity as a, 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 a terrible cult of the Jewish religion. There's something wrong with it. And so they think, well, let's seize Peter. And so he seizes, seizes Peter during that time. And then it says, Herod um, intended to bring him out for a public trial after the Passover. And so he does, he puts 16 guys around him. Um, they would have had people chained to him. They would have had two outside. They would have had six hours each that they would have been guarding him, and it would have taken 16 people to guard this one guy. He was not going anywhere. And he wanted to take care of it because, it says, after the Passover, because during the Passover, a lot of our strict Jewish people would have said that it's wrong to do any kind of uh, crucifixion or whatever we're going to do to Peter. It's wrong to do during the Passover. We'll do it afterwards. Now, it's interesting, they did it to Jesus during then, but they had to. That, just, that was the point in time they were going to do it, and they were going to do it. But to Peter, they say, let's wait till after the Passover. Now, the, the main point, I want to just shoot straight with you. I'm teaching a class on Bible study methods. The, the main point of chapter 12 is not what I'm going to talk about today. I know that's a scary thing to say. 
But, but the, the main point of chapter 12 is the rest of it. you got your Bible open, you can see it. The rest of chapter 12, Peter's going to escape. I don't mean to ruin it for you, but Peter's going to escape from prison. That's the point of chapter 12. And it's this long account. It is, we'll go through it next week. It's amazing what happens. And I remember reading this about two years ago, and I was reading through the book of Acts, and in, in kind of in preparation for this study, I hope someday to be able to go through the book of Acts. And I remember reading through this and going, wow, that's incredible. And for the first time, it hit me. All of Acts chapter 12, basically, there's this one chunk on the end that's not about Peter getting released from prison. All the rest of it is about Peter and this miraculous escape out of jail. There's got four guards at a time for four shifts a day. How in the world does he do that? And God does this amazing thing. What about verse 2? What about verse 2? Verse 2 says, go to the next one there, uh, Greg. He had James, this is Herod, is the he. He had James, the brother of John, put to death by a sword. And that's it. That's it. That's all the airtime James gets. That's a big deal. You've got to stop and ask yourself, whoa, wait a minute here. This is one of the original 12 apostles. Now, sure, we had Stephen martyred. Yeah, but, but let's face it, I mean, he's just one of the, the secondary guys. He wasn't one of the, you know, Fab Four or Fab Twelve or whatever. I mean, there wasn't one of the big ones. And he was one of the ones on the inner circle. The inner circle would have been Peter, James, and John, and some people include Andrew, the Fab Four. And so this was big news, and Luke gives him one verse. And I remember two years we had an overseer team meeting, and I said, what about James? What about James? Isn't God with him? Why isn't the rest of Acts chapter 12 about James getting out? And then we could, I'm sure there'd be no problem, either make it a longer chapter or insert a chapter 12 and a half, how Peter gets out, or whatever. It's not like that. What about James? Isn't God with James? What gives here? Almost a year ago, uh, 11 months ago, we, did a, a, we started the book of Acts, and we did a, a sermon called um, Meet the Simple People Who Rock the World. I had to split it into two parts because there's 12 apostles, and it's hard in today's culture to get a 12-point message. So we took it in eight points, and then f we went through the fourth. And I, I introduced you to, to uh, you have to kind of do James and John together because they're brothers. They're kin. They're kind of like Tim and Ben Johnson. They just, everything's alike on them except the things that are different. <laughs> I want to reintroduce you to who James was. In, in Mark chapter 3, these, he, there's just this list of who the disciples were. And it says, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And then it talks about Jesus here. And it says, to them he, that's Jesus, gave the name Boranagis which means sons of thunder. Do you guys ever get called sons of thunder? By, I bet you by your parents. Yeah, by your parents. I bet you. I'll have to talk to Carl and see what he says. Yep. And so he calls them sons of thunder. And so you ask, well, where do they, why would Jesus name them sons of thunder? If you look in Luke 9, Jesus has been with these guys for a while. And it says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, 
do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? I don't think, you know, the president, when he goes to, you know, they have a front team. Imagine that. Well, these, these supporters are not very supportive. Should we call down fire from heaven upon them? Well, imagine how that would go over. Maybe that would go over big. I don't know. It's, it's Peter and John. He doesn't say, I, I love this part too. He doesn't say, Lord, why don't you do this? Peter and John say, hey, Lord, do you want us to do this? We'll be happy to. We'll take care of these guys. We'll smoke them out right here. They didn't welcome us. Jesus turned and rebuked him. I can just see Jesus too. I can just see Jesus rolling his eyes. Jeez. I send you guys to do a simple job and you're trying to crispy cream them. <laughs> Jesus turned and rebuked him. They went to another village. Now where'd they get that from? I think it was from their gene pool. Look at Matthew 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons. The mother came to Jesus with their sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want? Remember, there are 12 disciples. The mother comes up and she asks this. Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. The other, the other, the other 10 are going, what? There's not 10 more spots here. We got a left, we got a right, and you want both of them, Mama, Mama Thunder. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I am going to drink? And foolishly they say, we can. And Jesus, knowing the kind of death he's going to die, and knowing the kind of death they're going to die, says this. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. You need to know when Jesus said that to James and John, they knew that they were going to die for their faith. They didn't know when. It was not a matter of when, or excuse me, it's not a matter of if, it was a matter of when. James is the first apostle to go. Tradition tells us that John was the last. But they both died for their faith. Now, there you go. A uh, couple of weeks back, I was sitting in Dave Sulak's class. If you don't know Dave, Dave, wave your hand, wave your hand right back there. Dave is, is just an incredible gift to Hope. That him and his wife, Laurel, are now uh, attending Hope Community. Dave is a trainer of men, and he has trained 6,000 different men. I don't know how many he trained. I'm just guessing. Uh, <laughs> But Dave has, has given the last, I would say, 20, 25 years of his life to working with individuals and small groups of, of, of pastors. I consider myself to be a mentor sitting under his teaching and, and being a, just time with the guy. It's, if you don't get time with Dave Sulak and Laurel, uh, you're missing out. I was sitting, I'm, I, he asked me to teach a class on, on preaching, which is very, very humbling because, uh, uh, yeah, anyway, the... the uh, so I'm teaching this class, and Dave is also, inter we're interacting. And we're going through, I don't remember what we're going through, Dave, but you mentioned in that class, we talked about suffering. And you said, are, he was talking to a group of, I don't know, it was 15 pastors of us in this room, and he said, are you preparing your people to suffer? It's one of those moments where just kind of everything gets quiet, at least in my own mind. I just thought, man, am I, pre am I prepared? To suffer. Am, am I prepared to go through that? And, it, and am I preparing and helping you all so when 
your wife gets hit by a car, you don't say there are two kinds of people in the world and I'm one that says there's no one out there. How am, I, what, how am I being prepared? How are you being prepared? How is James prepared? How is the church prepared to handle one of their superheroes being put to death by the sword? I want to go through four things that I think is so foundational and hope what I want to do this morning is help you help you to go through hard things. I, I, I don't mean to sound like a, 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 a killjoy and I hope you're having a great day. I hope you're having a great life. But times are going to get hard. And in the midst of that, you can have joy. Brother, I'm just going to embarrass you for a second. My brother here, Farhan, uh, that's, he's from Somalia. During worship, we're singing a song about, uh, uh, we're singing a song about what it's going to be like in heaven. And I saw you just worshiping God. And I thought to myself, I started crying, of what life is like in Somalia for your people. And here's him, he's just full of joy. I can see it. That's what I'm talking about. How do you do that? How do you live a life that doesn't have false hope that things are all going to be punky-dory? Because I promise you they're not. That's the biggest lie. If you're here this morning and you're here just kicking the tires of Christianity and you're thinking, my life sucks. I need to do something else. The, the alternative is not that your life won't suck. I bet you in the history of Christianity, no one's ever said that before. <laughs> Your life's going to be hard. The question is, is are you going to go through it with hope in God or not? It's going to be hard. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your wife. The wonderful plan, Jesus said, is suffering. Four things. I want to go through four things that I think are foundational to help us be people like James and the church. We're going to see how they responded. We're going to kind of cheat and look one verse ahead for next week and see how they, don't look now, um, and see how they did it. What are, the, what are the things that we need to know? Number one, they're right in your, your um, insert there too. Number one, know that you live in a fallen world, a world where sin lives Know that you live in a fallen world and that things are not yet the way they ought to be. You need to know that. You need to know that if things don't feel right, it's because you are a fish out of water. You and I were created in the image of God. You, you know, I, you and I were created to live in the Garden of Eden. And guess what? Minneapolis is great, but it ain't the Garden of Eden. And what you and I desperately want to, from our toes onto our nose, is to get back into the Garden of Eden, where everything is right, where all my relationships are, are good, and no one makes fun of me, and no one thinks little of me, and there's, there, I don't even think about those kind of things, and I can, I can leave my golf clubs in the back of my Suburban, and know they're not going to get ripped off, and all that kind of stuff. You and I don't live there. We live somewhere else. We live in a fallen world. We live in this world. And especially if you've come to a point in your life where you've trusted Christ, now, man, you have had a great hors d'oeuvre. Like, oh, that was so good. Mm, 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 mm. I want the meal, but you can't have the meal yet. The meal comes in the next life. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. 
He says, now we know that if the earthly tent we live in, he's talking about the bodies, using an analogy. He was a tent maker, so this worked for him. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan. Longing to be clothed with their heavenly dwelling. Tell that to your friends who don't know Christ. What's it like to be a Christian? I groan. I groan. Why? Because everything within me wants to be like that. Meanwhile, we groan longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit, not the whole, sh not the whole shebang, just a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith and not by sight. We live by faith in what's coming. We hang on for dear life to Jesus and not into circumstances, not into what we see. Second thing. Chris talked about this last week. Know that God is in complete control. God is not up there in the heavens going, <gasps> go across the street, go, go, little girl, go, go. No, he is in complete control. I don't understand why, the, why things happen the way they do. I don't understand why we're at war with Iraq right now. I don't understand why, why certain people get sick and die. I, that, I don't know, but God does. He is in control, and you can trust him. Know that he's in complete control, yet has promised us as followers of Jesus that life will not be easy. John chapter 16, Jesus is speaking one of the last things he's going to say to his disciples. And he says in John 16 verse 2, uh, verse 1, excuse me, all this I have told you so that in so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. All your religious groups that you've been a part of, disciples, you know they're going to kick you out. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. Then he goes on in that same chapter in verse 32, and he says, but a time is coming. He's giving his disciples the last warning. His time is coming and has come when you'll be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone. He's talking about when he's going to go face his crucifixion. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I have overcome the world. That's the hope right there. 1633, I have told these things so you can have peace, but what's peace? Peace is knowing that Christ has overcome in the midst of trouble. Third thing, know that God loves you with a love that if you truly, if you truly could grasp right now, your head would explode. I don't know. I, I, I can say this. I'm going to embarrass my folks here for a second. I know that every day of my life I have been loved. I have never doubted this. I thought they might kill me a few times, but I knew it would be in love. 
that they would have killed me. Some of you don't come from a family like that. Some of you come from a family where anger and hate and perhaps even abuse was there. But imagine those good days, even, even just a small way where your soul got satisfied with the love you knew was there, and that's just a tiny fraction of what the kind of love God has for you. Core read it, but God demonstrates his own love for this, us and this. While we were still sinners, sinners opposed to God, slapping him in the face, Christ died for us. Isn't that sweet? That's how much he loves you. That's, that's radical love. You slap someone in the face and they say, I just want to give you a big hug. That's what Romans 5.8 says. Paul writes later on in the book of Romans and he says in verse, or chapter 8, verse 35, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble... This is the Apostle Paul. We haven't seen it yet, but Paul's going to get just torqued on for being a Christian. He's going to be left for dead. He's going to get shipwrecked. He's going to get beat up. He's going to get flogged. He's going to get called not nice names. He's going to get kicked out of all his religious institutions. Paul did not have an easy life. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are considered more than conquerors through him who has loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, let's get practical with that. What did Stephen, remember when Stephen was, was, was being stoned, what happened? Remember from Acts chapter 7. It says he, in, in verse 55, he looked up to heaven, he saw the glory of God, and he told him about it. He says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They get so mad they cover their ears. They begin to stone him. They rush him. They drag him out of the city. And then what happens in 59? He says, Lord Jesus, I'm coming home. That's the perspective he had. I'm coming home. Receive my spirit. And then he looks at these people with teeth gritted, rocks in their hands, throwing them at him. And look what he says to them. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, you either got to be nuts or have a radical transformation going on in your mind to say a statement like that. And I don't think Stephen was nuts. You know how I know that? I was named after him. Huh? <laughs> know that God loves you with a love and if you could taste it all right now, it would blow your mind off. The last thing is this. The first, things, the first three were just things to know. Know that you live in a fallen world. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Know that God is in complete control. At the same time, though, he has promised you that hard things will happen. Know that God loves you with an infinite love, a love that just would blow your mind away, a love that would make you feel warm in every area of your life if you fully could feel it right now. And the last thing, though, is not just a knowing thing. It's an action thing. It's a taking of your heart thing. It's a saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you in that. Trust God. Do not live at the mercy of your circumstances. Trust God. Do not live at the mercy of your circumstances. 2 Corinthians 5, 
Paul closes that whole thing we looked at before about living in the earthly tent. And the last thing he says is this. We live by faith, not by sight. Now, I'm not telling you to be a plastic person. Things are going really bad, and somebody says, how's it going? Oh, it's going great. Praise God. I'm not asking you to do that. But what I am asking you to do, and I get swept up into it in worship especially, is, is to realize that behold, he comes, shining like the sun. That's, that's reality. What I'm living here is reality too, but it's not the real reality, if that makes any sense. What I'm doing is holding on to Christ for dear life. Don't live, don't let yourself be, oh, I'm up because of my circumstances or I'm down. Trust in the rock-solid foundation of Christ alone. The question Mel Gibson asks is a question I want to close and ask you. He said, the question is, what kind of person are you going to be? That's the question I want to close with you. Are you going to be a person in group number one, those who hope in God? And it's a choice daily. You have to wake up in the morning and say, today, God, in spite of everything that's going to happen, today I'm going to choose to trust in you. Now, you might take me on a ride. In fact, I think you are probably going to take me on a ride. Psalm 23 says, though I walk through where? Valley of the shadow of death. Well, who's the shepherd who brought me there? Verse 1 of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He's the one who took me through the valley of the shadow of death. It's a choice daily to say, God, we're in a ride together. I'm hanging on for dear life. Starting your faith walk with Christ is one big yes. It's saying, Lord, today I see that you're my Savior and I need to bend my knee to you. And it's one big yes. But it's followed by a series of bunch of little yeses every day. Every day saying, Lord, I'll trust you no matter what comes. Even if I only get one verse in Scripture. Actually, that'd be kind of cool to get one verse. But he only got one verse and James was put to death by the sword. That's it. That's one kind of person. The other kind of person Mel Gibson talks about is those persons just see things as, well, hope things go well with you. Good luck. Good luck on everything. And when things go bad to people around you, in your mind you're thinking, Whew, I don't know why, but I'm sure glad that's not me. And you live life based on your circumstances. Things are good. You're wealthy. You're healthy. Your family's doing well. You're up. Those kind of things aren't happening, you're down. You're, you're, you're a barometer for however the economy or whatever it is. That's where you're getting your life. I want to challenge you this morning. If you're in that camp, oh, drop it. Drop it. Hang on to the cross. Let's pray. God, I just confess there's so many times that I live like that. I live thinking that you owe me some type of life. And when circumstances don't seem to go well, I tend to get frustrated at you. And Lord, I, I, you don't owe me anything. Like that song, Majesty, we sang says, here I stand and uh, my hands are empty-handed in need of your grace. And that's where we are. We don't deserve anything. So God, I pray for people in this room. I, first of all, I want to pray for people whose life circumstances are really good. 
God, I pray in the midst of those circumstances being really good that you could just show yourself to them. That, that if things are going well and, and, and money's fine and relationships are good and health is good and whatever else, that's great. But in the midst of that, God, would you give them a gift? Would you give them a gift, God, that, that they'd be able to hang on to you for dear life even though life isn't hard right now? If it's necessary, God, take us through hard things so that we do hang on to you for dear life. God, I want to pray for those people who times are hard right now. And this message can be a hard one to hear. I pray, Father, that you'd be with them like you were with James, like you were with many other people, that you would just bless them and encourage them in the midst of this. They would sense you. They would know that you're there, that you're so good. It just overflows. They would sense it. Don't leave them alone during this time, God. When they're in the valley of the shadow of death, like your verse, like Psalm 23 says, that they would feel your rod and your staff and they'd get comfort from it, God can't do that by words. I can't do that by encouragement. I can't even do that by my relationship with them. You have to do it. So would you come and do that? Even as we sing these last two songs, God, for those who need you to put your arm around them, would you do it? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.